Salvatore, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I was appointed to the role of US Bureau Chief for the ABC in mid-2015. Uh, I arrived late that year. So yeah, when I was appointed to that job, it was an expectation that Hillary Clinton would win the election, that there was a, a sort of preconceived outcome. Donald Trump had just descended the golden escalator to de declare his candidacy, but he was very much the kind of joke candidate. Uh, and then, of course, I was there throughout the 2016 campaign and uh, the majority of the, the Trump presidency, which uh, was a, a pretty relentless assignment, but ever fascinating for, for me and the Bureau team. And this book, I should point out, is co-written by myself and my supervising producer from the DC Bureau, Ros Roscoe Whalen, who still works for the ABC, is now in the London Bureau. Roscoe and I worked hand in hand on the campaign and during the Trump presidency. So uh, he, he's been a, a fantastic partner in this endeavour. Yeah, so I think what became apparent to me when I first started reporting on the primaries and caucuses for the 2016 campaign was that this was not a preconceived outcome at all, that Donald Trump had a lot of grassroots support. And I think in, in some ways it was kind of a perfect storm in that there were a lot of people, particularly in inland communities in America, the so-called flyover states who were looking for an anti-establishment candidate, a, a renegade candidate, an anti-politician. And Donald Trump delivered that to them in spades. And of course, he was up against the ultimate establishment candidate in Hillary Clinton. And even Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side during that camp campaign was a, an anti-establishment candidate who gave Hillary a run for her money as well. So it, it was kind of a, a case of people coming out of eight years of Barack Obama, feeling disappointed in many cases with what he and his Democratic administration had been unable to achieve looking for an alternative, uh, perhaps looking for uh, a kind of shedding of political correctness, if you like, someone who is going to just be direct and, and speak to the issues. And in Donald Trump, they found the, a sort of unlikely uh, fit for what they were looking for. Oh, look, there are just so many. I mean, I think it, it was just so revealing to land in Iowa for the Iowa caucuses with this expectation that Hillary Clinton was going to sort of sweep the floor and, and win the election. And to see thousands of people turning out at Donald Trump's events. And, you know, Iowa's famous for its retail politics, you know, where people go and they actually meet the candidates and you see candidates kind of serving coffee in coffee shops and perhaps, you know, pouring a beer in a bar and, and actually speaking to people and, you know, small groups of people turning up in high school gyms, for example, to shake hands and say hi to Hillary Clinton. But even then, 
Salvatore, right at the beginning of the campaign, really, there were thousands of people turning out to see Donald Trump at this, these sort of rock star events. And we just saw that repeated over and over during the campaign to the point that by the time it got to late in 2016, we went to an event in rural Virginia in a, a, an area that really should have been easily democratic. And Donald Trump was late to that event because he was sort of snowed in up north or something. So even at midnight, there were still tens of thousands of people queued waiting to go into this event in the freezing cold and we we actually left <laughs> at about midnight we thought oh we're just not waiting any longer you know we've seen enough and we, we drove out of the area and there were just cars parked up everywhere for miles and miles from where the event was being held and you know that kind of really said to me something something going something's going on here this is like a, a cultural shift this is something quite unexpected and of course um we all know what happened uh, several weeks later when Donald Trump won the election. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? And, you know, in Donald Trump's case, I mean, he had a platform already because he was an identifiable personality. You probably already loved him or hated him, but, you know, people sort of knew of him as this blunt, direct sort of um, mercurial type of character who was able to come in at the right time when people were looking for an alternative and they felt that he could deliver that to them at a time when they were feeling really angry and I think many of them still feel very angry at the dysfunctionality of Washington politics, at the, the sort of entrenched nature of establishment politics that, and the fact that, you know, they, they define themselves in many ways as the forgotten people, just feeling like policy is made for people in the big cities, people in the, the highly populated coastal areas, that people in rural areas aren't being heard. But also there's more than that. And let's be blunt, I mean, Donald Trump uh, mobilised fear. He, he used his cult of personality to um, manipulate people, um, people's fears and xenophobia, you know, speaking to issues around uh, globalization and, and world trade and jobs being taken, you know, by people from other countries or shifted offshore, immigration issues, all of those sorts of things. And that kind of pandered to the existing anger and fear in many of these communities who had been already affected by uh, technological change, closing down of manufacturing, the global financial crisis, and, you know, a, a whole revolution that's gone on in many of those previously um, very sort of profitable and upwardly mobile inland parts of America that were built on things like steel and coal who've been struggling now for some time.
Yeah, I definitely think we can say the same for Australia. And I think that, you know, some of the issues of division that we see in America, political division, partisanship within, you know, the actual structure of, of politics and government are also happening here in Australia, a, a sense of people being disenfranchised if they're not in the big cities, not being cared about, not being listened to. Uh, I definitely think all of that exists. Um, and increasingly in Australia, that media partisanship that also tends to inflame that sense of division. But I think in the US, uh, that runs much deeper in part because it's such a large population that you can kind of afford to have media that speaks only to one or another side. And, and unfortunately, what tends to happen there is that people only watch, listen to or read what they already believe. So it kind of amps up uh, their belief and potentially their angers, their, their fears, uh, rather than sort of getting a, a range of perspectives in the media that they're consuming. And I think that's something that Donald Trump also uh, actively utilised uh, both as a campaign tactic in terms of the media coverage that he was able to get for himself and also in the way that he communicated with people through the likes of Fox News, uh, but also increasingly uh, more marginal uh, media organisations and, of course, his uncurated megaphone of Twitter uh, that he used throughout his pre presidency. <laughs> Yeah, I do. And I, I do think that Donald Trump ran the country like a CEO. He certainly ran the White House and the administration like a CEO. It was a very top-down style of management that had kind of variable success in a way when you look at the amount of turnover that he had in his staffing during the administration. Uh, but also his relationship on with those leaders on a global level is kind of interesting in that a lot of um, Donald Trump's modus operandi that we speak about in the book is sort of box ticking and being able to see, define himself as better than his rivals. So are either able to beat those international leaders tactically in some way or beat his predecessors as president in some way. Uh, so to be able to be seen to have succeeded where others have failed, if you like. And you, you might recall, Salvatore, that early uh, during his tenure, he put out this contract with the American voter of things that he said that he would achieve during his presidency. And he very much set about doing that and literally ticking those boxes. So things like moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, uh, Supreme Court justices, tax reform. Many of them he didn't achieve. You know, healthcare reform is, is a big one, for example, the wall along the Mexican border. But, you know, a lot of his modus operandi is to be seen to be saying what he'll do and then doing it and being able to rule a line under that, or to be able to say, oh, well, Ronald Reagan was never able to do that. Barack Obama was never able to do that. And I think the 
his relationship with Kim Jong-un is a classic case of that. You know, that whole dynamic with the North Koreans has completely fallen apart now. And it, in the end, it kind of went nowhere. But in Donald Trump's mind, he still has the fact that Tick, he was the first sitting president to meet with a North Korean leader. Tick, he was the first sitting president to step into North Korea. Many of his supporters will remember all those camera flashes um, that happened during that time, rather than the fact that it never actually led to anything. Yeah, and that, that is certainly one argument that his supporters would make is that, you know, did he dampen um, what, where the North Koreans were going at, at that time? Others would say, well, under cover of that sort of negotiation, if I could describe it as that, the, the North Koreans were continuing to develop their nuclear program and we will see uh, just what that's yielded. So there's two ways of looking at that. And I think that remains a work in progress. Yeah, I mean, it's such a fantastic question. And I think it's exactly what the Republicans are grappling with right now, because they, they have this huge problem where they were quite um, antagonistic towards Donald Trump. Many of them were back in 2016 in the lead up to him getting the, the um, nomination. Finally, they had to accept, well, he's the one who can win it for us. So they had to kind of embrace him. Then with everything that went on, in the back end of 2020, they kind of tried to step away from him again, but you still have 74 plus million people who voted for Donald Trump and the Republican Party needs to try to keep those people in the tent, but also the rest of the Republicans, the moderate Republicans who really do not like Donald Trump and his politics at all. How do you actually kind of merge those people politically and find a candidate who is a candidate for all of them? Uh, I'm not sure that there is one. <laughs> I, I certainly can't name one today. And I think, you know, this is, well, you know, Pompeo's, Pompeo is not a bad um, option if you're looking for someone who might be able to um, walk that line um, because he certainly was, a, was very loyal to Donald Trump. I think he, people would see on the Trump side of politics that he did a, you know, an acceptable job as Secretary of State that, you know, in terms of people who might be offensive to them, perhaps he's palatable. It, it's just that there's no cult of personality around Mike Pompeo. And that's what, you know, people really embrace with Donald Trump. So that's what, what the Republican Party is trying to grapple with now with Trump still sort of just keeping himself there enough uh, that people think perhaps he still has a sniff of running again.
Well, I, I think the thing that in my mind that was unprecedented about it was not necessarily that he was elected, but the, the way that he he held that leadership, you know, the way he he sort of pulled apart entrenched protocols in foreign policy, for example, in the kind of language that leaders use, in, in uh, the way that um, people view race and, and gender, you know, um, perhaps enabling, and this is something that we talk about extensively in the book, enabling xenophobia, enabling white supremacy, uh, for example. Um, did he erode um, the sort of civility around the way people treat each other, uh, the way people view women, um, sexism, you know, how the, the example that he set in the, the language that he used around women, um, did that enable, you know, others to think that was okay too, sort of stripping away political correctness in a sense, and also just that revolving door in the White House of staff um, you know, shedding a lot of deep expertise in US departments, Department of State is a, a classic case. So just that sort of really haphazard um, chaos theory method of governing, I don't think we've really seen, certainly in modern history. And the, that chaos theory, I mean, there's a lot of kind of analysis now of did Donald Trump have a strategy or was he just kind of winging it? And I I've sort of feel like it's twofold in that I think there is a lot of gut feel with Donald Trump, but his strategy is chaos theory, that if you're creating chaos, everyone else is chasing you, you're running a conversation, you have complete control of the narrative and, and people don't have the opportunity to create their own because they're too busy trying to keep up. Uh, I think where he lost control of it with, was with coronavirus. You know, in my mind, he would have walked into a second term if, if the pandemic hadn't happened, but that was one thing that he couldn't control and that, you know, he failed to manage. Um, but, you know, without going on too much, I think the other thing worth mentioning in regard to the question is that one thing that I think runs really deep in terms of the anger that we were talking about earlier is the fact that those who voted for Donald Trump are uh, infuriated that people who opposed Donald Trump could not accept that he was elected via a democratic process and that that was just as legitimate as the election of Hillary Clinton would have been. And that, that sense that his presidency was undermined from day one by the Russia probe, the threat of impeachment and all sorts of other things, rather than going, okay, he won the election legitimately, let him get on with it, give him a go. And, and now that we're at the end of it, that anger is still very much there. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, in a way, as I sort of mentioned, the perfect storm at the beginning of this chat, you know, Donald Trump came along at the right time for people who were looking for something. And, you know, I've heard it described recently as a, a cultural shift. Um, and, you know, this is in, a, in an environment of 
uh, very rapidly changing demographics with a, 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 a community that's becoming increasingly multicultural, um, areas that were once Republican are becoming Democrat, uh, working class people who voted for Democrats are becoming Republican, you know, there's a huge amount of change going on. Uh, so in that sense, it is um, like kind of like a cultural shift that's happening in the US and, and Donald Trump was kind of the figurehead for that. Um, the thing that's sort of still the outlier to that conversation though is the fact that you know Donald Trump really did um, create that cult of personality that put him at the head of the Republican Party that sort of forced the party to accept him and that pulled all those people along behind him and it's just a question as we've already talked about of well if it's not Donald Trump who is it can, can anyone else mobilize people uh, for, for better or worse in that way. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I've never thought that the two things really equated, you know, obviously some people who would sort of consider themselves, um, you know, aligned with the Tea Party supported Donald Trump and certainly several members of that grouping ended up working in, in the White House in various ways um, or in his cabinet. But to me, Donald Trump voters are, are different. Um, many of them are people who maybe wouldn't otherwise vote or wouldn't be sort of politically activated or energized and they were they were energized by him and i also see it as much less formal um it, you know in the true sense of a movement these people are not kind of members of anything um and you know the tea party is kind of organic in that way too but i think donald trump supporters are even more amorphous that you know they have some similar perspectives on some things um they're prepared to kind of pause their misgivings about Trump in, in many ways around, particularly around um, race and gender and civility uh, for the sake of the other things that they thought or think he can de deliver to them. One of them being uh, economic growth, particularly and, and sort of a return to prosperity. And I think that's where the root of a lot of anger uh, on the democratic side is that, you know, many Democrats kind of go, well, we're just not, not going to deal with you now because you you shouldn't have paused uh, your morality for the sake of things that you thought you could gain and i think you know this is something something that the, this is kind of one of the basis of the book i guess is that well if we take that view that the two sides aren't going to speak to each other then what happens now um because you know in my mind what's required from the biden administration is a very generous approach to try to um, connect with those Trump supporters, particularly the ones who are increasingly going to the margins even further uh, before this actually, this train even uh, goes further down that track to the point that it can't be brought back.
Yeah, I, I think it's a great point. And I, I do think both parties have an identity crisis happening currently. You've got that split in the Republican Party with the, the Trumpers and the Never Trumpers and how they go forward in that context. But Democrats um, have a different issue where they have, you know, their sort of traditional working class base that perhaps feels that it's losing its connection with the Democratic Party. And many of those people are starting to sort of look towards the conservative side of politics. And then you've got your sort of inner city uh, coastal dwellers and, and people who are veering further to the left who would support Bernie Sanders style of politics or, or AOC. Uh, as you suggest. And, you know, that became very evident in 2016, where there was that um, shift towards Bernie Sanders and a, you know, potential split in the Democratic Party as well, and a lot of younger people driving that movement. So, you know, I think you do have that, that identity crisis on both sides of politics. And I think in Australia, uh, particularly on the Labor side, that's something that, that the ALP is also grappling with as they try to service um, their, their people in the inner city, professionals and the like, and, and those who would have been traditional uh, progressive voters, unionists and such. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's clear that it was already happening before Trump and then Trump was was able to kind of further um, utilise that for his own ends. Um, and I think, you know, fake news, erosion of trust, uh, fragmenting of truth, uh, which in the end led to people storming the Capitol because they didn't believe that Donald Trump had lost the election. So it all sort of came home to roost then. But that, that says a lot about where we are at as a society, where you have uh, a situation where uh, facts are now a matter of opinion. Uh, you can't say anything without someone contesting it. And, and there's no trust in sort of experts anymore or indeed institutions. Um, so I think, you know, that that is something for leaders the world over to consider, uh, particularly as many leaders, including uh, those on both sides of politics in Australia, uh, utilise fake news, for example, as a phrase to cover up for inconvenient truths uh, that they don't want to face. And, you know, well, as a journalist, um, and obviously someone who's sort of built a career uh, based on trying to get the facts out and being as truthful as possible in, in our coverage, I think it's very dangerous to get to the point where uh, there's no trust in anything. Uh, I'm not sure how we move forward as a society where nothing is treated as fact and ev everything is uh, nebulous. I don't think so.
No, and I don't think they came to understand Trump himself either, to be frank. Um, you know, I think they got better at dealing with him towards the end. You know, they put on a lot of fact checkers and they, they really upped their staffing to try to kind of pin him down on things where he, when he was manipulating information. Um, but, you know, there's a, a saying that we uh, scatter through the book that his supporters use, which is, um, you know, basically... Um, consider, uh, don't take, take Donald Trump, um, well, one, one side takes him seriously, but not literally, and the other side takes him literally, but not seriously. So the media takes him literally, but not seriously, and his supporters take him seriously, but not literally. Um, so, you know, they believe in the ethos of what he says, but they don't necessarily think he's going to do it. I mean, the one point at, at which that boiled over was when people stormed the Capitol, though. Um, but I think, you know, the US media sort of couldn't quite grapple with the fact that Donald Trump would say something, but he was never actually going to do that. This was all just part of kind of the performance. Uh, but the thing is, you know, there's also an argument that whatever the president says is consequential. Uh, and many of the US media organizations took the position that if he was saying it, that it, that it should be taken seriously, even though his supporters also would look at it and think, well, that's just Trump being Trump. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Salvatore.